Well, our text tonight is a classic missive on love from 1 John 4. Genuine children of God, John says, love God and love each other. And John is really clear and uncompromising on this point as he writes in verse 7 and 8, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. If we really know God, John is saying, if we really believe in God, if we really belong to God, then we will radiate love, because God is love. Love reveals who we are, whose we are, and what spirit we are of. Love witnesses God's eternal nature. Love is the wisdom of God, and each of us are called to love. And this is our highest calling, reflected in the first two commandments, to love God and love others. Your job is not your calling. Your job is your context. Your calling is to love. I know a preacher who I've heard speak a few times who got very ill and had a near-death experience and he had a heavenly vision of Jesus. He saw people entering heaven, they're all believers, they're all going in, but Jesus was asking every single one of them, have you learned to love? Have you learned to love? And in heaven, there's no hiding, there's no lying, and so many of them were telling the truth, saying, I haven't, my heart became cold, my heart became hard, I got angry with the church, I got bitter, I took too many wounds, I got too busy pursuing money and career. So many of them were confessing that they hadn't learned to love. And then Jesus turned and asked him the same question, Bob, his name was Bob, have you learnt to love? And Bob clearly hadn't fulfilled his assignment to love because he was sent back to earth. And that became the primary message he had from God to the church for the rest of his life. Have you learnt to love? If Jesus stood before you this evening and asked you directly that question, have you learnt to love? what would your answer be? It's not always easy to love. It's a costly calling. True love is costly. It costs Jesus his life. Love involves laying down our lives to put God and others first. It can involve humbling ourselves. Jesus humbled himself to wash the feet of his disciples at the Last Supper. Then scripture says in doing that, he showed them the extent of his love. He humbled himself to reveal his love. Love flows as we lower ourselves. Love crowns humility. True love is costly, but it's worth it. Because when we act in love, even of the small things, it's of great value to God. Thomas A. Kempis, who wrote the famous devotional in imitation of Christ, said that God weighs the love with which a person acts rather than the act itself. St. John of the Cross said, in the evening of life, we will be judged on love alone. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that on the day of judgment, the fire of God will test all of our works and anything that survives will bring a reward. 
Anything that we have done for love for God and others will pass through the fire. Sometimes we can be influenced by um, by the culture around us and take on society's idea of what success looks like. But regardless of any success we experience or accolades we receive, if we lack love, we will be left with nothing. And this is particularly acute in relation to spiritual activities. As Paul wrote in one of his most famous passages, we can have all the spiritual gifting in the world. We can have a faith that moves mountains. We can give all we possess to the poor but if we lack love, it counts for nothing. Love is the priority of heaven, and we're called to live with eternity in mind, not for the temporal earthly realm, not for the things of this world, but for the eternal realm, for an eternal reward. We're to set our mind on things above. I once read a book by a woman called Anna, who's a minister in the U.S., And after a few years of ministry, early on in her ministry, she too had a vision of heaven. And she found herself on a beach with an angel. And there was sand and buckets and spades. And the angel said to Anna, would you like to build a sandcastle? And Anna thought, that's a complete waste of time. No, I want to go to the throne room. I want to meet with Father God. The angel said, no, I'm sure you do want to build a sandcastle. She said, no, I really don't want to build a sandcastle. That's not what I'm here in heaven for. And the angel said, well, I thought you did because all you've ever done on earth, even in your ministry, is building sandcastles. Nothing you've been building has been built with love. It's all been from earthly motivation. Anything we do in life that is not motivated by love is gonna be washed away like a sandcastle by the tides of eternity. John writes in verses 16 and 17, God is love, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. When we walk in love like Jesus, we will have confidence on the day of judgment because God will find something of himself in us. And if he does, then we can expect an eternal reward. So we're called to love. It's impossible to love, however, if you're an empty vessel. You can't drum up love within yourself if it's not there. You can't love through willpower, or gritted teeth, you can't give away what you don't have. We can't even begin to love until we know, truly know, that we are loved. John wrote in verse 19 of our passage, we love because he first loved us. In other words, we love out of the overflow of his love for us. His love fills us and empowers us and enables us to love him back so that everything we do in life, even the small things, changing a nappy, writing a talk, writing an essay, whatever we do, even the small things can be a response to our revelation of his love for us. We love because he first loved us. You could say that the Christian life is fill up and leak. You fill up on the love of God and you leak it out. 
Fill up and leak. Fill up and leak. St. John of the Cross wrote this, where there is no love, pour love in and you will draw love out. St. John was one of the most celebrated authors, theologians, mystics, and uh, authorities on prayer in church history, but he was not afraid to embrace the simplicity of the Christian walk. Fill up on love and pour love out. This is how to live a life of love. When I was a younger Christian, I wanted to know about this love of God I'd heard about, but it felt like there was a brick wall in the way layer upon layer of self-protection meant God's love was more theoretical than tangible to me. But I've learned over many years that that can change. Learning to receive love can actually be a spiritual discipline and you can choose to exercise the muscle, starting with just meditating on scripture, particularly this letter, but any scripture that talks of God's love for you meditating on scripture and asking the Holy Spirit every morning to fill your heart with the love of God. That's his job, that's one of his primary roles, Romans 5.5, the Holy Spirit fills our hearts with the love of God. So ask him each morning to fill you with love in your devotional time, learn to practice the presence of love and look to Christ on the cross. John writes in our passage, verses nine and 10, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. John points his readers towards the cross as the great demonstration of God's love. When we gaze upon the one who was slain for us, we start to understand, we start to glimpse his great love. And we're called to gaze. Eric Gilmore said this, the sum of the Christian life is not behave, it's behold. We are to behold the lamb who was slain for us. And as we do so, his love will be communicated powerfully and supernaturally into our hearts. This is what happened to a very backslidden nun in the 1500s called Teresa of Avila. She was basically forced into a convent. Her heart wasn't in it. She was known for being a gossip, an idler, um, someone who would just go around causing trouble with the other nuns, someone who was definitely not on fire for God. And um, she had, but she had, a, she had a moment one day where she saw a sculpture, and the sculpture was Christ tied to a pillar being brutally flogged by the Romans. Just for a moment, she beheld the Lamb, and the Holy Spirit landed upon her, and she caught a glimpse of what Jesus had suffered for her, and her heart was absolutely pierced by the love of Christ. I saw an image, she wrote, it was of Christ terribly wounded and it was so moving that when I looked at it, the very sight of him shook me for it clearly showed what he suffered for us. This was the turning point in Teresa's life, the moment she beheld the lamb, the moment she tasted the love of God and it set her on fire 
And she became one of the most famous mystics and monastic reformers and authorities on prayer, again, in church history. Her whole life pivoted on that revelation of love. As John said, we love because he first loved us. Now, none of this goes uncontested by the enemy. The great opponent of love is fear. Love and fear want to control the territory or contest the territory of our hearts. And I believe that, you know, on a daily basis, hourly, even minute by minute, each of us can either live in response to love or in reaction to fear. They can't coexist, love and fear, in any given moment. And verse 18 of our passage, John particularly highlights the fear of punishment, the fear of being punished or condemned or rejected or judged, abandoned by God. And and sometimes we have this fear because we may be believing lies about ourselves or lies about God, lies that obscure his loving nature. But I also believe that the fear of punishment is almost written hardwired into the human psyche. Our ancestors, all of our ancestors, if you go back far enough, were pagans, and ancient paganism is based on appeasing the deities, giving them what they want, both to get something in return, but also out of fear of punishment. You'd have to sacrifice something or someone to fend off bad harvests, avert bad luck, or appease angry spirits. Pagan cultures were ruled by fear, ruled by a fear of what might befall you if you offend a deity. Fearing and appeasing deities are in the human DNA, and we can still wrongfully project this in subtle ways onto Father God, even unconsciously. But it's completely toxic. The fear of punishment will sabotage intimacy with God, especially if our fears are based on lies about his nature. If we don't believe that God is love, it will be very hard for us to make ourselves vulnerable to his love, to let his love in. Fear of punishment also causes us to perform. If we're afraid we're going to be punished because we don't measure up or that we failed, we'll try to perform for God and others to win approval and stave off punishment. We perform to dodge the bullet. Fear, therefore, becomes a pathway to a compulsive need to perform. You could say that a lot of the world, a lot of the time, is driven by some flavor of fear-based performance, but the problem is there's no love in it. There's no love in the need to perform. But John has the solution to all of this, that toxic fear of punishment. As he writes in verse 18, perfect love casts out fear. To conquer our fears, we have to first be conquered by love. Love displaces the fear in our hearts, and when we know we are perfectly loved, then we will be perfectly free. John, the author of this letter, was able to write about love and fear with great authority because his heart had been conquered by fear. He wasn't always like that. Jesus called John a son of thunder. He had a fierce nature. He wanted to send fire on a Samaritan village, burn everybody up because they rejected Jesus. That was who he was in the flesh. But slowly, John became softened and defined by love. He starts to refer to himself in his writings as the beloved disciple. 
John knew, he knew that he knew that he knew that he knew that he was loved. And we all know that classic picture of John at the Last Supper with his head resting on the chest of Jesus in loving intimacy. And in that posture, Jesus shared his secrets with John about who was going to betray him. It's only if you know that you're loved will you have the confidence to put your head, rest your head on the breast of Jesus and hear his whispers. When Jesus was arrested, all of the disciples fled, but only John returned to find him. Of the 12 disciples, only John was at the cross. He knew Jesus' love for him was far greater than any mistakes he'd made. The other disciples were not there because they had been conquered by a fear of punishment. But John had been conquered by love, which enabled him to conquer his fears. As John hung on the, hung on the cross, as Jesus hung on the cross, he asked John to look after his mother, Mary. He trusted John to love Mary because when you know you're loved, you will know how to love others well. Towards the end of John's life, he was also entrusted with those, those visions that became the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. The more that we know that we're loved, the more we will see of him, and the more we see of him, the more we will know his great love, and the more we will love him. This letter, 1 John, carries so much spiritual authority because John embodied its message. He never lost sight of love. Church father Jerome wrote that when John was a very, very frail and weak old man, they would carry him into church and every week they would ask him to give a message. And each time he would simply say to the assembled crowd, little children love each other. Little children love each other. Let's finish quickly by comparing John with Peter. Peter took a little longer to get there. It's hard not to like Peter. He was kind of like most of us, uh, a bottled mix of fear and love, always going from one to the other. It was his love that caused him to step out of the boat and walk on water towards Jesus. But then fear of the storm cut in and he started to sink. If we let fear in, it will short-circuit love. When they came to arrest Jesus, Peter drew his sword to defend his friend and master, but then fear came upon him and he fled, abandoning the one he loved. Always this battle between fear and love. Worse, Peter then went on to deny Jesus three times to the servant girl before the rooster crowed. Peter was completely conquered by fear. He was conquered by fear of punishment, fear of the Romans, fear of the Pharisees. But after the resurrection, Jesus met Peter on the shoreline and cooked him breakfast. Now, Jesus could have expected punishment and rejection from Jesus after such a great betrayal, but instead... He received compassionate restoration. Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter said, you know I do. So Jesus said, take care of my sheep. He commissioned Peter to lead the church. Spiritual authority rests on love. And I believe it was in that interaction that Peter was more deeply conquered by the love of Christ. To receive such grace after such a sin 
would blow anyone's mind. When you receive love and kindness at the very moment you least deserve it, then you never forget it. As Jesus himself said, those who have been forgiven much, love much. Peter was never the same person again. Fear never had that hold on him again. He became a man of profound courage and tradition holds that he died a martyr, having asked to be crucified upside down, not thinking himself worthy to die like Jesus. This was the same person who years earlier had lied about even knowing Jesus to a servant girl. But now he was approaching death like a lion because love had conquered the fear in his heart. As John writes, perfect love casts out fear. So that's my challenge this evening. This is the question I have for myself, for all of us. This is the question we'll have to ask ourselves many times over and over. Will we let our hearts be conquered by fear or be conquered by love?